Hello everyone and welcome. My name is Andrew. And I'm Rachel. And we are Peach to the Scene Podcast. We are a true crime podcast aiming to put you, the listener, at the scene of the crime. Each week we delve into the murky world of lesser known crimes from the UK and Ireland. And occasionally we also venture into renowned cases from around the globe. Now, if you like what you hear, please do follow us on whatever social media platform you prefer. Subscribe to us on your preferred podcast platform of choice. And if you have the capability, please do give us a rating and review as well. And if you like us that much that you want to support us and see us carry on doing this for the foreseeable, then please do head over to Patreon where you can support us for as little as £1 a month. We have bonus content and episodes over on Patreon. And depending on your tier, depending on what you get, obviously, and it really does help us carry on. So, as with any True Crime podcast, listen discretion is always advised, and with a title like Incest, I think you can imagine that today there is no exception. Wow, I didn't mean to chuckle there, I'm sorry. It, uh, it's just the, the idea of you saying, yeah, title like Incest, today's no exception. Delightful. Yes. We do, where possible, now release episodes a week early for our patient supporters. So if you want to hear next week's episode right now, then head over to Patreon. We're also recording a couple of episodes in advance, aren't we? Because I am heavily pregnant now. I can officially say that I'm in the throes of being heavily pregnant. And uh, yeah, we're we're trying not to disrupt our scheduling. Um, So yeah, this episode is coming to you from the past. It's not that. That's not that fancy, is it? Actually, we're well into we're well into twenty twenty four when this gets released, and we're not we're not even at Christmas yet. Um, so, Rachel, how are you doing? I'm good. Apart from being heavily pregnant, that's a that's a little bit of um, an inconvenience at the minute. But yeah, all good. How are you? I'm good, thank you very much. Rachel's got a lovely jumper on, people. Just good. I'm, I'm sparkling. Sorry, I'm sparkling. Be hey, sleep, I've got be sleepy. I've got a bright yellow jumper on today because I'm I'm trying to bring the happiness and the cheerfulness to a day fu- filled with an exam. Who wants an exam at 37 weeks pregnant, might I ask? Yeah, no cheating. No one. There. I know, no cheating. I I've got yeah. No pressure. <laughs> so let's forget exams for the moment and let's go on to something important. Sounds good. I- are you ready for some true crime? Yes, Andrew. Let's go. So today I'm looking at a rather strange case. I'm surprised none of the other British true crime pods have picked up yet. And I don't think they have, but maybe I missed some of them if they did. But it's an interesting case. Let us know what you think. So, if it's safe for you to do so, I'd like you to relax. Close your eyes and picture the scene. Today I'd like to go back to the 24th of May, 2019. And we're heading off to Sheffield, where I was born and my family is from. It has a population of around 600,000 people. It's got a long and varied history, ranging from being a key player in the Industrial Revolution, with Sheffield still being famous around the world, to being host to the oldest football club in the world that still exists, Sheffield FC, as recognised by FIFA. And uh, they are one of only two clubs to be given the FIFA Order of Merit the other club being Real Madrid. So, inhabitation of the area has been found to be from as early as 12,000 years ago, 
And while the city itself suffered a lot in the 70s and 80s, it started to regenerate in the 90s. And, you know, I could go on for hours about Sheffield, but I'm not going to. But it gives you an mm. idea of the place. Was it in the Doomsday Book? Yes. Yes. Yes, it wasn't the city, but yes. On the 24th of May, 2019, we're heading off to the Shy Green area of Sheffield. Shy Green is a residential area consisting mainly of social housing or ex-social housing homes. While it's rough around the edges and has a population of low-income or unemployed people, it's a place that's okay if you keep yourself to yourself. But like most places in built-up urban areas, it's got both good and bad parts. And we're off to Greg House Road in Shy Green, to a three-bedroom social housing house lived in by Sarah Barris and her six children. Sarah was a single mother to her children, but had a good network of friends and family around her. In particular, when I refer to family, not really her parents, but her brother Brandon, who was four years older than her, and he used to visit her often and help her with the children and just offer friendship and more support. What a great brother. Yes, indeed. Sarah was 34 years old. Her oldest was 14, her second oldest 13, then 11, 10, 3, and the youngest was 7 months old. Oh gosh, that's quite an age gap between the 10-year-old and 3-year-old, isn't it? It is, yeah. Four of her kids were classified by the social services as having additional needs, with her oldest being on the autistic spectrum. Wow. Yeah, wow, indeed. That's a lot to handle when you're a single mum, isn't it? Absolutely. Um, Juggling, you know, four kids. um, Sorry, five children, did you say? Six children. Six. Sorry, I'll start that again. Absolutely juggling six children uh, in itself on your own, but then um, accommodating um, four with additional needs. Yeah, that must be like, take my hat off to her. Yeah, exactly. While Sarah had six children, She had never been in an active relationship, yet did quite proudly tell social workers when asked that all six children had the same father, but she never said who, and would tell them that he simply wasn't involved in their life. Oh God, I've just twigged. Brandon, her brother, well technically her half-brother, they had the same mum, but different dads, but they'd been close since they were kids, with Brandon often helping out around the house, and with... And with the kids attending appointments with Sarah when she was pregnant and otherwise. And he was a truly supportive brother. So he was the one that gave her the support. Oh dear. Why are you saying oh dear, Rachel? He's not just her half-brother, is he? Let's find out, shall we? So on this day, just after seven in the morning, it's already a sunny day. There's very few clouds out. The temperature is around 15 degrees Celsius or 59 degrees Fahrenheit. Sarah started texting and sending Facebook messages to her friends. A sample of messages read as follows. Brandon is a dad to all the kids. The pills didn't work, so he's had me kill Tristan, and he's killed Blake and X. I can't name X, obviously, for legal reasons. And I've sat here with the other three. He's going to kill them, then me. And then another message that she said to her friend said, he's trying to kill us, and Tristan and Blake are already dead. Oh, my God. 
So, yes, she's saying that Brandon is a father to all of her kids, her half-brother. What time of day are these text messages being sent? Just after 7am. What the hell? So, yeah, just for context, in case I've lost anyone here, Brandon is Sarah, Sarah, the mum's half-brother, so they had the same mother but different dads. And Tristan and Blake are her two oldest children. I didn't mention their names before, but Tristan was 13 and his brother Blake was 14. So everyone she was messaging, Rachel, contacted the police, as you would do, wouldn't you? Well, and, yeah, you get messages yeah. like that, you don't mess about, do you? And it's it's also reported that she herself called the emergency services. I couldn't find out exactly what she said to them, but I believe it was along the same lines as we've just heard from the messages that she sent to her friends. So, oh yeah, with multiple reports, including one from the woman involved herself, the police took this seriously, and several police cars were dispatched, along with an ambulance and an air ambulance to her house. Can you imagine being the call receiver as well? Of multiple calls saying, you know, my friends just text me, her her children are dead, her life's at risk. Like, I, I yes. do watch um the BBC One um docu series uh, of ambulance, and you know, it's one thing what those ambulance staff have to turn up to in terms of scenes of crimes, but it's quite another being in the call center initiating all of these different um like vehicles to get to the site as quickly as possible the air ambulance the normal ambulance you know sometimes like the highly skilled paramedics go in their single cars as well to get there faster but like imagine just waiting on the end of a phone to know what they were faced with and what happened it'd be torture in a case like this wouldn't it knowing that there were such young children involved it would be yeah let's find out what they found shall we okay so the police entered her house and made their way upstairs where they found Sarah barricaded in her own bedroom with four of her kids, clutching a notebook. When she was asked where her other two kids are, the eldest, Blake and Tristan, she told the police officers that they were at a neighbour's house. However, while she was saying that to one of the two police officers who were in the room with her and her kids, one of her children contradicted what she was saying by indicating to the police officers that they were dead, and then at the same time, the child ran their finger across their throat, saying they were dead. Mm. When Sarah saw this, she tried to stop the kid doing what they were doing, and said to her child, stop, don't say that. The police then searched the other two bedrooms, and found Blake and Tristan on their beds in their bedroom. All six of her children were rushed to hospital, with Tristan being declared dead at 9.42am and his brother, Blake, some 12 minutes later. The other four children were kept overnight but survived. So initially, Sarah was arrested. And do you remember she had that notebook in her hand, Rach? Yep. Well, in that notebook, he had some notes that were from her and the notes were titled funeral arrangements so let's unpack this i think we need to unpack this don't we and see exactly what happened yeah i'm a bit like concerned where's brandon first of all um has sarah done any of 
it, like are any of the kids deaths by her hand or are they all by his like yeah, yeah. what's what's going on in the weeks leading up to the death of her two children Sarah was becoming increasingly erratic with her behaviour. She was regularly in contact with the social services anyway before this, with them having visited her home 13 times in the couple of months leading up to this. She had often contacted them, saying that she needed support with her children, but she was seen by the social services as a devoted and caring single mother who was just trying desperately to keep her family together. She would often tell the social workers that she was afraid they'd put her children into care to take them away from her. And they repeatedly said to her, though, that 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 was the last resort and their focus was on providing her the support that she needed to get through all her issues. She would state, however, to the social services um, that she didn't believe them and she feared her kids would be taken away. And she said that she didn't want to lose them. She was struggling a lot with Blake, who was on the autistic spectrum. He also had ADHD and other issues, and he had recently become obsessed with porn and had stolen her their aunt's car and was also bullying her other kids. And then also Tristan had started to repeat that behaviour of Blake. She thought that because she was struggling to cope with her two oldest children, it was impacting the other kids as well, so they'd all be taken away from her. And I think that, like, I can fully comprehend that, like, when you are a parent and something feels out of control and you know as well, like, social services, especially if they're already kind of knocking on the door about general, like, how you cope and what's going on here, like, your mind does go to irrational places, you know, um, and I can imagine there was a sense of real overwhelm and stress there thinking it's only getting worse how do I get a grip on it and you're in like a vicious cycle of of thinking you know I'm to blame and and my children are off the rails and like yeah I can't imagine that uh, that was easy to get a grip on and control for her yeah no I can't disagree at all either there so as part of this standard process of social services had inquired who would have thought I'd probably better qualify that I I use social services as a catch-all for um, bodies that help families. Yeah. She was actually the children's, it's called the children's uh, social care. Yeah. It's the actual department. But just in case someone says, why are you going to social services? It's that one. That's that why. Um, but as part of the standard pro- process, they'd inquired who the father of the children was because they have to, to make sure there's no abuse like the person's not a sex offender or stuff like that. Um, And even though she told him they all had the same father, but he wasn't involved in their lives, that that fact didn't seem to trigger any alarm bells, even though the oldest was 14 and the youngest was seven months. Um, And it should have maybe triggered some alarm bells because how could someone not be in her life but be father to six children over such a big age gap? Yeah, and all of her friends like watching her get pregnant again and carrying a child and not seeing it with a with a man at the time must that must have been quite confusing as well. Yeah. Um so the father was her brother, well half brother Brandon, as we now know. But no one knew that rage. And it actually managed to keep it a secret and everyone thought Brandon was just a caring brother trying to help his sister. 
So, so had they kept it a secret because they both knew it was wrong? Yes. Or had they kept it a secret because he was controlling him? No, because they knew they were brother and sister. Oh, no, absolutely. You don't need to tell me that yeah. it's wrong. But and what I'm trying to establish is in some of these instances, you you do get one partner who's more controlling and, you know, where you've got that element of, well, we don't have the same dad. He could have convinced her that it was normal and legal and, and nothing was untoward about it where she, you know, and, and also, by the way, I want it to be a secret because, you know, I, you know, you're like beneath me or whatever. However, he'd controlled her in, in helping her to like believe that like she wasn't able to tell anyone or was she actually a part of it all along? No, they kept it a secret because they both wanted they both to keep it a secret, but yeah, they knew that it was wrong. Um, so when she turned up to appointments, she'd either say Brandon was a close family friend or her brother. She never actually told anyone who the father of her kids was, and she always refused to when asked. Her kids would later report that whenever they asked who their father was, she would tell them that he had died in World War Two, and then nothing more. What? Well, the young kids weren't there. I know I read that, and I thought that's a bit of a strange thing to say, but... They were young kids, so I guess they just believe what their mum told them. Oh, gosh. Could you imagine them going away and telling their little pals that? And then their pals, like, go home and say, hey, such and such as daddy died in World War Two to their mum and dad. And, like, their mum and dad being like, eh. Yeah. Do you know Do you know what I mean? That would, yeah. To me, that would indicate that there was something untoward going on, but with a parent or with, an, like, a grandparent, you know, of an elderly age, like, oh, man, it's this is mad. Yeah, so in yeah, all I can say is, yeah, I guess you're, you're exactly right. In the weeks leading up to the deaths, she'd posted a quote from Stephen King on Facebook that said, murder is like potato chips. You can't stop with just one. And she'd also be often heard saying to her kids, I gave you a life and I can take it away. Oh, wow. Okay. That's turned things around a bit for me, I've was feeling quite sorry for her, but she sounds quite threatening as well. Two days before the incident, Sarah's kids had been upgraded in their risk level by the social services, but it was still deemed that she was still a good mother trying to do her best. What no one knew, however, is that around 10 days before it happened, she started to plan with Brandon to kill her kids and then herself with them deciding on Brandon being the one who would find all of the bodies and then raise the alarm. So she was planning it with him? Yes. Wow. And then decided to send the text messages that said he made her do it? Well, yeah, we'll get onto that, but yeah. Wow. Gosh, there's something, something that's flicked in her brain, hasn't it, in terms of, her ability to make rational thoughts, my are my my feelings. She can't. You don't rationally make a plot to kill your children, do you? No, of course not. No. The evening before it happened, Sarah had set the scene with her friends and family, sending them messages, and post also posting on Facebook that all of her kids had a sickness bug, and they were vomiting and had diarrhea. What she had done though was gather all 
of the tablets up in the house, mainly quite a lot of ADHD medication for her oldest. And then she'd got some like pop, some soda, and sat her four eldest kids down. And even though they ref- initially refused, made divided the tablets up and made them swallow all the tablets. And they did resist, but she made them. And when they had swall- swallowed all the tablets, she sent them to bed, thinking that they would die in their sleep. Her plan was to kill the two youngest children herself, once the oldest were dead, and then to kill herself. However, there's however here, Rachel. Come the morning, she realised when all the children were alive that her plan wouldn't work. So she then sent messages to Brandon to tell him that he needed to come and help her as the kids were still alive. And this is not disputed. Like, the messages were seen. And, um, and yeah, like, other things as well, which we'll get on to. So after he arrived at the house, she proceeded to strangle Tristan with her dressing gown cord in front of the other kids. And when Blake saw this and shouted, Mum's trying to kill Tristan, Brandon started to strangle Blake with his own hands. When they both thought the pair were almost dead, they got two bin bags, swapped over with the kids. So Brandon took Tristan and Sarah took Blake. And then they tried to, to try, then they proceeded to try and suffocate the pair of the bin bags by wrapping them around their heads. And when they thought they were dead, they were actually unconscious because they'd later die in hospital, as we found out earlier. But when they thought they were dead, they placed them on their beds. After that happened, Brandon calmly walked downstairs and got himself an energy, stri- energy drink while Sarah would then get the third oldest child, the 11-year-old, and try to drown them in the bath, with him shouting at her, why are you trying to kill us, Mum? Oh, my God. Yeah, I know. When she realised that she was failing at drowning her child, that's when she took all of the remaining kids, including the ones she tried to drown, that she thought was still alive, and barricaded herself in the bedroom, and started sending the messages while Brandon left her home. And Brandon obviously had no idea that she would she turned on him. And well, I think he did because that's why she barricaded herself in. Or I, we don't know the actual interaction what happened there. But she barricaded herself in, and he left. So he must have something must have happened between them. Oh, okay. Initially, she would try to blame Brandon for it all, but upon arrest, both of them because he was arrested the same day as well. Upon arrest, both of them would fully admit what happened. Brandon would state when he was asked why he did it that sometimes you just get the urge to strangle someone with both of your hands. Your own child, though, because I'm taking it he confessed to being the kid's father at this point as well. Yeah. Oh, what a horrible man. Yeah, exactly. So they both admitted it, Rachel. So there was no trial to find guilt just a sentencing, as both pled guilty to two counts of murder and five counts of attempted murder. Oh, God. The judge would end up sentencing the pair to life with a minimum term of 35 years each. So during the sentencing, so I know that's quite early I've said that, but I just want to get onto a bit more detail here. So during the sentencing hearing, it would come out that the children who survived one of them being the 11-year-old Sarah tried to drown, 
were now emotionally broken by the action of their parents. Carmen, I'm not surprised. You, yeah. I'm not surprised you you put trust, like the utmost trust and faith in your, your mother and father. They are there to protect you. Yeah, you know, exactly. And, and most parents, like the majority, 99.9999999% of parents would step in front of their child to protect them from harm, not do their child harm. That will absolutely, excuse my language, but fuck you up for the rest of your life if your own mother has tried to kill you. Like, who do you trust after that? Exactly, yeah. So, Kima Melly, who was was a prosecutor barrister, said in court, when the two older children were told Sarah and Brandon had pleaded guilty to the murders of their brothers, and the attempted murders of them. One of them said they were worried that they would become a murderer when they were older because that's what their mum and Brandon did. Oh, my God. They said they didn't want to be like that. Both the, over, both the older children, who were still alive, are emotionally broken and don't know why this has happened. They repeatedly ask why and how. We don't have the answers. Both keep saying they just want a nice family home I say they want their brothers back because it's too hard without them. There's no doubt that all four children will need ongoing psychological support. She said the older two were really struggling knowing they would not see their big brothers again and not seeing their other siblings every day. They have lost everything because the four kids were split up, unfortunately. I have no words for that, to hear that. Yeah, I'm so sorry. I thought I would now get into the pair of killers. How a brother and sister came to be together in such a way and how they never got noticed or caught, if that's okay. I mean, there is part of me that is intrigued about it, but uh, another part of me doesn't want to hear any more about this horrible case. But please, yeah, you've written it, so go ahead. I think we need the context. Because you've said all along, and I think all our listeners will be saying to themselves, how could this happen? Why would they do this? So it's widely accepted that both Sarah and Brandon had horrible childhoods. Both of them, as children, be subjects of child protection plans and being known to social services from a young age, that they had been neglected for most of their childhood. It was genuinely accepted in court by the judge that while not acceptable at all, this is what twisted Sarah's thinking in wanting to kill her children, that she didn't want them experiencing the life that she had in care. Just as an aside, for Brandon, his actions didn't seem to be motivated by anything to do with the children. It was more because it's what Sarah wanted, and also it seems like violence was um, was part of his life. So, I'm not saying that I can kind of see where Sarah's coming from. Because she obviously wasn't thinking rationally when she made a decision to plan to kill her children. But if you're in a, a state of distress and you feel... Like there are no other, there's no other way out. And, you know, she did all along have the intention of taking her own life as well. 
you know, there's an element of, okay, she she didn't know any better. But what I would say is, if they if they had such a traumatic childhood and it was always on her mind about her kids being taken into care, why on earth did they get pregnant so many times? Like, you know, yeah. if they if they've been having a relationship for fourteen years and there was a seven year gap between two of their kids, they obviously knew how to be careful. Yeah, it's that they're not. You know, they're not like a family that. You know, if if Sarah for instance, was being, like, sexually attacked, then, you know, and the pregnancies were as a result of that and they were they were ad hoc, then you could kind of um, kind of comprehend, okay, well, she just got pregnant every time she was attacked. But if they were in a consensual relationship and, yeah, for, for a long period of time not, not, not having kids, why on earth did they put themselves through the, the pain of, of creating, you know, Having children? Oh, yeah. I don't know uh, whether that, any of that makes sense, but no, that's it, where my it, head is. It, it makes sense, but just to add some extra context, she only became worried about losing her children when the oldest Blake started showing the behaviour, such as being obsessed with porn and seeing his aunt's car bullying her kids. That's when she thought that her kids would be taken away. Before then, she wasn't in fear that her kids would be taken off her. Okay, so... At the time she was getting pregnant, she was blissfully unaware that at some point in future all would come crumbling down. Yeah. So from the age of nine, Brandon was moving between children's homes and residential units before moving into his own independent living home. By the time Sarah was six, she was living in neglect. And by the time she was 14, she was in a children's home. Now, Sarah and Brandon's mother suspected the pair were lovers as teenagers because she found love letters the pair had wrote to each other. When Sarah was 14 and Brandon was 18, she reported them to the authorities when she found the letters. When Sarah was quiz on the letters, she denied everything and said they were not in a relationship. And for, following a review, no further action was taken by either the Children's Social Care Unit, the Social Services, or the police. Because remember, she was 14 and he was 18, so it was also an oh, illegal, illegal relationship. Yeah, and like, would the services have been as naive as just to take a 14-year-old's confirmation? Well, yeah, partner them and the police did, because they took no further action. Wow. It's mad, isn't it? Yeah. It was also found out after the pair arrested, I mean, after they killed their children, uh, that while it was never proven, most of the children in the children's home, when they were kids themselves, suspected the pair were in a sexual relationship. So when Sarah was 19, that's when she fell pregnant with Blake. So they'd already been in a relationship for five years uh, by this time before she fell pregnant with the oldest child. In a subsequent report, it turned out that even though at the hospital Sarah told her staff and she also had the same midwife at two of her births, that the father was the same but wasn't involved in their lives. It came out that the lack of professional curiosity meant that not enough probing questions were asked. Again, like, it's a difficult one, isn't it, right? If you're turning up to the hospital to have a baby and you're getting asked, yeah, but who's the father, who's the father, who's the father? You're thinking, can can I? Can you just help me? 
bring my child into this world, please. There's like an Oof. element of, you know, it's not none of your business. Tuna. But also, if you've got a woman here who has has turned up six times and had six children and claimed to, or who claimed to all have the same father, surely there is a pattern forming that's that that is ringing alarm bells of abuse, like you know where she's either too ashamed to say who the father is or she is in a coercively controlling relationship and is unable to confirm who the father is. And you'd imagine that the people in the hospital setting and medical settings would spot signs like that. I mean, it's rich for me to say because I, I work in neither setting. Um, but yeah, you'd imagine that there'd be these triggers, wouldn't there, in, in some handbook somewhere about you know, spotting signs of, of something being untoward. Uh, well, that's, um, yeah, I mean, we're, I'm not one of those professionals either, but I might, I thought about this myself because she also turned up with the same man six times. Um, but I just thought maybe they were just that busy that they just didn't link them together that and too. stuff like that, yeah. And, if, yeah. It was a, and it, if it was a normal birth, you're in and out, aren't you, a lot of the times? Yeah. Do you know what as well, like, I think back to situations when I've taken, you know, friends to appointments. I've I've brought like my dad to a hospital appointments if my other half hasn't been able to make it. You know, my brother drops my daughter off at certain clubs every week because he goes to a club that's like right next door to that to the club that she's going to, so it makes sense for him to to take her. And, like, you know, no one, I'd be horrified if anybody would ever ask me, like, why is your dad accompanied you to this appointment? Why is your brother taking your daughter to her class? Why Why is your, you know, why are you accompanying your friend? You know, what? what's the intent here? Are you, are you guys in a, a relationship or is there something untoward going on? Like, nine times out of ten, it would be incredibly innocent that your brother would be with you for the birth of your child just for anything other than supporting you. Yeah, no, I agree totally. Yeah, I agree totally. But so whenever, um, whenever there's deaths of children like this, there's always a special case review in the UK, or in England and Wales. Anyway, I'm not sure about Scotland. And even the special case review, Rachel, they admitted little could be found out about Brandon and his life, other than he is a half brother of Sarah, and the eldest of two children from the mother's first relationship. Now, it also came out a few months before the murders, Sarah had texted a friend saying this, and it was a chilling premonition, Rachel. She, she said this, I thought of every possible solution to this mess. Mass murder, putting them all in care, checking into a local nut house. I love my kids too much to kill them, but I can't put them into care for the same reason. So obviously she'd finally decided that Maybe she can't put them into the care, but she can. She can't cope on her own. Yeah, but she can die with them, yeah. Oh, my God. Sarah and Brandon's half-brother, Martin, would come out after the trial to describe the pair as evil from birth. He would say that the pair were obsessed with torture and horror films and all things related to violence. He would say that Brandon was obsessed with Sarah from childhood 
I gave examples such as when he came home, Martin this is, to the family home, he'd found out that the pair had let the family's pet mice out of the cage and had then proceeded to chase them around the room and stamp on them, killing them. And then after they had done this, rolling around in tears of laughter at the little dead mice's bodies. Um, I think it's really easy to come out and say something like that after the fact by that half-brother, you know, to say, oh, yeah, they were evil all along and they, they did this, that and the other. Yeah. But where was his intentions when the children were, when all six children were alive? Had he ever gone to the we'll get on to that. services? Or... Oh, right. Yeah, okay. we can get on to that. So, yeah, he also gave examples of when uh, trying to impress Sarah, Brandon had picked him up by the legs, turned him upside down and then banged his head against the floor. And also he gave examples of when they had just randomly attacked other children. He said that while he didn't suspect Brandon was the father of the children, he had called social services on several occasions about the pair because he'd witnessed Brandon being violent towards the children. But he said that the social services never acted on his reports. Wow. That's so quite that, powerful, that, isn't it? So that's your answer. He he said that he like one of the occasions he get went into a lot of detail. I'm not going to all, but he said one of the occasions he witnessed Brandon, I think when Blake was three or four, three, I think, uh, that age anyway, roughly, uh, pulling Blake out of his buggy and dragging him along the floor. And that's the first time he reported them to the social services. He said, but there were other times after that. But nothing happened. So, almost two years after the pair had killed their children, the local housing authorities knocked their house down and planted a memorial tree in its place so that people in the community could remember the two children. When they had their funeral, it came out that both of the kids loved motorbikes and cars. So the local people in the area managed to get 300 uh, bikers who lived locally and two Lamborghinis to uh, escort the coffins to the funeral at the time. Imagine as well, like, at that funeral, neither of your parents are going to be there because they're on trial for your deaths. Like, what's, what, what horrible... What horrible goodbye from the world that your parents can't even be at your funeral because they're responsible for your deaths. Yeah. Yeah, I know. So that's, that's all I have, Rachel. What do you think of this one? Bit of a crazy and really upsetting case. Yeah, I think I've um I think I've been through all the emotions in the last forty minutes. Um really, really difficult one uh to listen to this morning. And um yeah, I just those boys. I've I've seen photos of them of Tristan and Blake who lost their lives, and you know handsome, happy young men um, who didn't deserve to die at the hands of their parents, whom they will have had the absolute utmost trust and faith in. It's just horrible. Yeah, I, I can't disagree with you at all. I think what summed it up perfectly for me was in the judge's comments, I haven't really gone into what the judge said because we can see exactly what happened, but in the judge's comments, one of the comments he said was uh, along the lines of, we'll never know right now 
how this is going to affect your children, but we we are we are confident that this is going to impact them for the rest of their lives. And I think that's exactly right. We don't know what how this is going to impact them, but this is going to this has changed their lives. It's it, like the the so the prosecution came out and said that whenever the children are crying or upset, they never ask for their parents. But for for an eleven year old, for their primary concern to be that they're going to go on to kill as well, like yeah. most most eleven year olds are, you know, who's going to tuck me in at night? I know eleven's probably a little bit of a a different age than when we were kids, but yeah, most eleven year olds are, you know, where where have mum and dad gone? Like you know, the concerns like what's normal, what's what's going on, what, but. For for the for the eleven year old's primary concern to be, what if I go on to kill because my parents kill us? Like, yeah, that to me speaks volumes of how their life has changed unmeasurably, um, because of this incident. Yeah, the, I mean, the, yeah. you're right, and I don't know if I included it or not, so I'll say it now. The kids were asked. I don't know which one said this, but the prosecution barrister said the kids were asked how long they think their mum and dad, or mum and Brandon, because they didn't know him as a dad, mum um, and Brandon should be in prison for. And they, one of them replied, for 300 years, so they never get out. Oh, wow. I mean, that says again, it all, it? absolutely. You know, you hear it. So when parents defend their children who kill, and, I use children in the sense of doesn't matter how old you are, you're always your parent's child, right? So you could be 40 years of age and have killed somebody and then your parents will stand by you. Um, you know, you see them kind of like, fair enough, maybe not publicly, like voicing their opinions, but they're wanting for your for their child to come out of jail and and to be okay and safe and well, but for a child to say that about their parents, three hundred years so that they never get out again, that's you know that's that's crazy and how awful their their childhood must have been to have to have that much hate for their parents or for their their mum and Brandon. I think it was. I think they implied. Obviously, we don't know for fact, but I think they implied it was more fear than hate. Oh, yeah, I'm absolutely not surprised by that. And, you know, hate, very strong word there, isn't it? But fear, of course, like they've had their lives in the hands of of, of Brandon and their mother, like, and luckily unsuccessfully, you know, um, yeah. attempted to kill them. But, yeah, the fear, absolutely, you know, what? that that would that would cause you to, um, you know, want, want, want your parents to never come out. Of course, of you, you have to remember that they... I know the child, the youngest is seven months, so hopefully that child has been spared this. But you have to remember that they killed Brandon, sorry, they killed Blake and Tristan in front of them. Yeah. And then oh, they, yeah. And, and then With a dressing gown cord and yeah. hands. Like, that's not going to be an easy no. way to go either. That's going to be minutes of pressure and struggling yeah. and stress, you know. And the oldest one survivor the 11 year old then has to live with the fact that the memory of his mum trying to drown him in a bath uh, no absolutely 
I, I, I really feel for them. Um, I don't think we need to say any more on this, do we? Other than it's it's heartbreaking. Shall I wrap this one up then? Yeah, let's put this one um, in the vault and not talk about it again. This has been season four, episode eight, called Incest. And if it's safe for you all to do so, I'd like you to relax, close your eyes and picture the scene. At what stage, if a family is being closely monitored by the Children's Social Care Authority, should they accept that some homes are just not suitable for a child, even if it means splitting the family up? So thank you everyone for listening to this one and we shall be back next week. Thanks guys. See you next week.